Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you again for listening, and I hope that you will share the Lincoln Project podcast and our mission to protect American democracy with your friends, your family, and your colleagues. To get more information, please go to lincolnproject.us and sign up to be a supporter today. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by legendary Democratic strategist, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, and host of That Trippy Show, found wherever fine podcasts are offered, Joe Trippy. Joe, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. Good to be with you, man. So, Joe, it's been a while since we've had you on, so thanks for coming back. There's a lot to get to. You know, I want to talk a little bit later about the fact that Nikki Haley is the first non-Trump candidate in the 2024 GOP nominating contest, and I want to get sort of your broader predictions for 2024. But before we get to that, let's talk about where we are. So, you know, as we're talking about this, we're just a week past President Joe Biden's State of the Union address. The Republican House, led by Kevin McCarthy, has started its sort of cockamamie investigations, which so far have been really just, I think, opportunities to illustrate how goofy and crazy they are. And, you know, we still have this looming debt ceiling. It's not a crisis yet, but it could be in which, you know, the government will run out of the ability to borrow money to pay debts it's already incurred. And I think we always need to remind that this is not for future spending. This is money we've already spent and we need to pay for. And so President Biden did a magnificent job, not only in a speech as written, but also understanding where Republicans were as far as Social Security and Medicare, which they have singularly created or recreated as the third rail in American politics. And he led them into this canyon they can't get out of. So they promised they won't cut Social Security and Medicare. They don't want to cut defense spending. So now you've got most of the federal budget, not including debt service, right? Interest we have to pay on the debt. So what's left? Where does a Kevin McCarthy go from here, knowing that the White House has basically said, this is a red line we're not going to cross. And, you know, sitting across the Capitol building, I think both Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell are happy to watch McCarthy twist in the wind. No, he's been totally outmaneuvered on all fronts. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the MAGA caucus have him cornered on one end. And then you have, I mean, Biden walking the entire Congress into standing <laughs> in support of our seniors and Social Security. I mean, it was just classic and brilliant. I mean, it was ad lib. And then you're right. I mean, I think McConnell and Schumer are happy to let him twist. And there is no way out of this canyon. I mean, that's the amazing thing. The problem, of course, is the debt ceiling crisis could turn into a real crisis because McCarthy is just incapable of leading right now. And I think there's a bunch of crazies in the House that may well try to take us over the cliff. I mean, their their whole desire is to destroy government anyway, right? So it's a dangerous game that McCarthy's caught in. 
And he's such a weak leader. I just don't know how he gets out of it. But isn't this a broader issue with the Republican Party today? And Joe, this is one thing, you know, as a former Republican, I'm always surprised when I get this reaction, but maybe I shouldn't. We as an organization have been saying, like, we believe that the Republican Party as it stands today is beyond redemption. That doesn't mean there aren't individual Republicans who want to run for office or who no longer in office like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger. And that doesn't mean that individual Republican voters are necessarily bad people. But the direction of the party and where its leaders have either taken it, a la Donald Trump, or been willing to go along with it, like a Kevin McCarthy, they've made this deal with the devil. They are consistently caught in the middle, which is between their base primary voters who really do believe in a lot of the things that Trump has said that now Ron DeSantis is pushing, that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and all these other goons. And then they have reality, right? So they're stuck between MAGA and reality. And without fail, Joe, in your time in politics, have you ever seen a group or a party that when offered the chance between crazy and reality, not only most of the time goes crazy, but consistently goes crazy when offered that chance? And that's what's going on. And that's why this debt ceiling, if they go to the crazy again, which is, as you point out, it's where they've gone every time. You know, they're trying to move away from this. I mean, I think McConnell, obviously, and a lot of the Senate that'll be up understand they don't want to crash this thing. At the same time, like I said, I mean, I just think that the true control of the party comes from people who, you know, kind of follow Steve Bannonism, if you want to call it Trumpism, and want to and want to burn the entire place down. Well, the best way to burn it down, blow up the debt ceiling. And, you know, in the end, I think they'll have to pass it, but I don't think it's going to be a fun ride at all because of the crazies. And we should remember that Steve Bannon, who is, I think, in many ways, the philosophical architect of a lot of this Trumpism, is a Leninist, not a John Leninist, but a Vladimir Leninist. And his avowed belief is that in order to create the society that he thinks America needs, that you have to burn it foundationally to the ground. And so he's perfectly willing to do that. And these other people are too. I think the issue we've seen, and this is one of the things that I've been frustrated with when you see the so-called moderate Republicans, and I'm putting that in air quotes because Joe and I can see each other, is, well, guys, you know, you had plenty of chances to stop this. You could have stopped it in 15. You know, you could have stopped it in 16 at the convention. You could have all said, you know what, you may not like Hillary Clinton, but if you don't like Donald Trump, stay home like we've done with those voters. They could have done it after January 6th and made sure that he could never run for federal office again. And consistently, they have not chosen to make that hard choice. And therefore, here we are. And so you're right. First and foremost, I don't know that Lauren Boebert has any understanding, nor does she care what the debt ceiling really means, right? The Republicans were the ones who voted for three clean debt ceiling increases under Trump while they blew a hole in the deficit with massive tax cuts for the rich and for corporations. And so like they have also created this problem. And now McCarthy is desperate to find somebody to bail him out. And so, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, although I have no evidence of this, is that when they allow cameras in the White House, you know, in those meetings in the Oval Office, if it's McCarthy who doesn't want it, right? Because He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, because his only real constituency, Joe, 
the reason why he rose through the Republican leadership so quickly is not because he was some great legislative strategist or at least had some philosophical underpinning is because he could raise money. Right. That's the only reason he was rising through the ranks, because he just raises money by the bucket. But those are the very same people, the wealthiest of the wealthy who, you know, Steve Schwartzman are these people who stroke seven, sometimes eight figure checks or those other wealthy, mostly guys who write one hundred thousand dollar checks to have lunch with them. They don't want this, but they wanted him to be speaker. So they've all gone along. Right. They're all fellow travelers in the movement. And then they're surprised when, oh, God. McCarthy, you know, is willing to be at the driver's seat while Marjorie Taylor Greene's like sitting in the passenger seat as they go Thelma and Louise on the country. That's the whole thing here with the quote moderate Republicans, you know, that there's some belief that they could come back. They can't. I mean, McCarthy kind of proves that because his whole speakership, we saw it with all those votes for the speakership. It's why he's still hanging around with Santos, right? Because he needs the vote. He needs the vote. So he has no room to maneuver. All those guys who ponied up the cash could be leaning on one side. On the other side, he's got a bunch of people who could bail on him in a nanosecond and into speakership if he doesn't go along with whatever crazy notions they have. What's fascinating to me is that Trump has kind of not touched this stove yet, right? He hasn't waded in. And it'd be interesting to see how DeSantis, Nikki Haley, how these candidates come in, you know, the press should be asking every single one of them right now where the hell they are on Social Security, Medicare, sunsetting it, you know, the new, well, we should look at it every year, crap. I mean, it's just like, where are they? Are they part of this burn it all down bananism? And if they aren't, how do they maneuver that? Because we know that there's a sizable base in the party that wants to burn it all down. We've talked about this before, but the problem with burning the entire forest down and expecting all these beautiful green shoots to come up is everything in the forest dies. And it takes years. It's like, you know, Mount St. Helens erupts, right? And it just decimates the wildlife around it. And then they're like, but 20 years later, look at the richness of the volcanic soil. Yeah, but it wiped out like 150,000 trees and killed like eight people, right? The jobs that will be crushed the global impact economically. But to ban it, all that pain's worth it, man. And I don't think, you know, is somebody going to step up in the Republican Party in the presidential race and say it out loud? I doubt it. And if they do, who's going to listen? You know, on the Trump piece, let me say this, and let me just codify by saying, if you clip this, you will clip it with context, is when Trump is the voice of reason politically on Social Security and Medicare. Think about that, Joe, right? Like, I mean, goodness gracious. But, you know, he's always been there. He's always fundamentally understood because, remember, he's not really a Republican, right? He's not really a conservative. And he's made a living, in fact, a lifetime out of spending other people's money he ever never had any intention of paying back that, like, I don't understand why this is such a big deal, right? We're going to borrow money. Like we always borrow money, right? And so he's staying out of it, but you know, he can keep the MAGAs fired up in the meantime. It very well could be that, you know, maybe Trump gives McCarthy the imprimatur to say, take this off the table. Because remember, Trump, not the brightest political bulb in the marquee, but he's got some relatively smart people around him. And if he wants his guy in the speakership and he wants this giant time bomb right off the table, then he could say, 
give him the debt ceiling deal for two years. Let's never talk about this again, or at least not until after this, and make some pledge to look at, quote unquote, reforming Social Security and Medicare. Because, I mean, Joe, there is the elephant in the room, so to speak, as far as entitlements are concerned, is that like time and money are not on the side of those programs. And there does need to be a serious discussion about that. But this is where it's like you have to be able to hold multiple ideas in your head, which is you can preserve it for those that need it the most who will rely on it right here and you can fix it. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But this is the other part about the quote unquote moderate Republicans, right, is that they're not prisoners in the asylum if they don't want to be right. They can free themselves from this. But freedom for them also comes with a price, which is they might not survive their primary, right? They might not survive a re-election bid. Now, they're all in purple districts anyway, but this is one where you could say like, okay, I'm going to shed my label for the good of the country, and we're going to go to Kevin and say, we're not going to take the country over the cliff on this. In fact, we're going to stand together, 18, 20 of us, whatever it is, and say, we disagree with the speaker on this, and we will not allow it. And let the slings and arrows fly. You know what? For the most part, it's Twitter trolls. You're going to be fine. And go to Jeffries and say, let's do a deal. But here's, the, here's what you need to promise us is like, we are going to take a serious look at how we're going to fix this. Give the Dems the debt ceiling, right? And I don't know how you do this legislatively, right? So maybe I'm just talking out my rear end, Joe. But the point is, is that a public statement like that would be a big deal. No, it would be. I just don't see a group that large doing it because they haven't shown any of that courage over, what, the last six years? Almost eight at this point. Yeah. I mean, they, there's just been no signs of it. There's been the Adam Kinzinger and Cheney. They're not there anymore. I mean, there's very few. And you look at who's heading up the committees and who's in charge, and it's just not them. And I don't see them standing up to it. They didn't stand up to them in the McCarthy speakership fight. Well, and, and I said that to someone who I was speaking with specifically about this. I said, you know, they let MAGA take control. Like they knew what they were getting and they were not the last votes for McCarthy. They were the first votes for McCarthy, right? Well, who else would we have done? I'm like, you know, well, they have these rules they have to work with. And I'm like, they don't. Like this is the beauty of being in the middle of a transitionary time is that there aren't any rules. You could have gone to Pelosi and Jeffries and said, give us Alyssa Slotkin as speaker for two years and we'll go with you. And it would have totally blown up the party. But in the interest of those guys and gals who believe that the party, if they don't believe the party's broken, I don't know what to do for them. It would have given the opportunity to scramble the deck and really make everything you know, work for two years, which would have been harmful to the Republican Party. But as I said at the top, Joe, I think it's irredeemable as an institution to begin with. Well, it is. But the other reason, Reed, is because of the money. I mean, OK, so you're these 18 people, you bolt, you do something. And it's not just that you've got to rely on some deal that you cut with Democrats or whatever, but all your money gets turned off, period. You're suddenly out in one of these marginal districts with no dough because McCarthy, Trump, everybody turns it off. There's all kinds of fear here that have like made these folks all cowards, in my view not willing to risk their political careers, as plenty have done or, or just said, no, I'm not part of this, I'm leaving. No, these are people who want to survive. And to survive in this party, first you were hostage to Trump and still are, and now you're hostage to, if you're not a member of the MAGA caucus, you're hostage to it. And even McConnell and these guys, I think, are underestimating how much they are held hostage. 
by both Trump and the MAGA caucus in the House. So speaking of being held hostage, let's switch gears here and we'll leave Kevin in the dust and we'll discuss the 2024 Republican primary race, such as it is. As we're recording this today, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former U.N. ambassador under Trump, is announcing her bid to be the 2024 Republican nominee for president. The headlines, Joe, keeps saying she's the first person to, quote, take on Trump. I fundamentally disagree with that construction because she hasn't taken on Trump. She released a video yesterday on Valentine's Day, three and a half minutes, where she doesn't mention Trump. She sort of says, you know, bullies, blah, 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 but she doesn't really mention it. So a couple of things off the top. One is Haley was a person I remember watching in 15, early 16, when she was supporting Marco Rubio. I remember being at a rally for Rubio in Charleston. Again, this is 2016, so it feels like a million, early 2016, seven years ago. Like, okay, this is the future of a party I can get behind. Now, Trump was on the march. He'd already won Iowa, and it looked like he was going to win, but Rubio looked like a guy for the future. Haley looked like a woman for the future, right? They looked like America looks now and will look more like in the future. And then just like we talked about with these other quote-unquote moderate Republicans, she sold out. She's done being a governor, right? What's she going to do next? So she gets this job that, you know, UN ambassador, probably not a bad gig, right? All things considered. But it's all of the things that you have to put up with and you have to accept that have tainted Haley with otherwise probably, quote unquote, normal Republicans. And because the MAGAs know she's not true to the cause, I was looking at some of the comments about her video yesterday, Joe, and they're just brutal. Right. So, again, you know, Steelers, we are right stuck in the middle with you. And I also thought that just the, you know, the video, like it was just all so conventional, Joe. It was all so 2012. Even the hills. <laughs> yeah, no. Sarah Silverman on The Daily Show said the 90s called it once it's joke back. <laughs> yeah, it was like, <laughs> I don't get what lane, and I, that's even going back to the 90s. Like, there's lanes in the Republican Party right now. There's one freaking lane, people, you know, and they're all going to end up fighting over it, either to somehow be in the Trump lane. Maybe he picks her for VP. I don't who the hell knows. But I mean, first of all, I agree with you. She's not MAGA. She's no longer even a rhino. She's in like sort of, you know, on an island. I don't see where she gets any. Oh, she is the new generation, though, Reed. That's the important thing. She's got that new generation lane all locked up. Wasn't that Pepsi's tagline for a long time, too? The taste of a new generation. Look yeah, how that goes. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, she didn't mention Trump by name in her video. Now we're recording this as she's probably getting ready to do her event in Charleston today. She probably won't mention him by name either. I saw some notes too that, you know, it was Valentine's Day. It was the anniversary yesterday as we're recording of uh, the fifth anniversary of the shooting in Parkland, Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And shout out to our good friend, Fred Guttenberg, who lost his daughter, Jamie, there, who is an absolute rock in the movement to save our kids. And I just I can't say enough good things about Fred. He's just a, he's a mensch of menches. And then, you know, we had the shooting at Michigan State. And somebody's like, why would she do this? Why would she do this? And I said, you know, I, I did this little thread on Twitter, Joe. They'd been planning this for like six weeks. This was the day. This was the day the rocket had to launch. And they became so locked into it that they couldn't get themselves out of it. And so it also, I think, speaks to the conventional nature of it, which is they don't move fast. They don't think about this stuff. They're not fleet of foot. 
which is, okay, should we have ever launched a video on this day? Probably not. Knowing this was happened, could we move everything back 24 hours or 48 hours? Was it really going to matter at the end of the day? And look, I've been a part of a disastrous launch. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and one of the causes of it. And so this is one of those things where it just seems like they sort of dusted off this playbook from 10 years ago and said, OK, we'll just run this because there's just no imagination. One, but two, I think still lacking even more now among non-Trump Republicans or nominally non-Trump Republicans, Joe, an understanding of the world we live in and how not only the world we live in politically, but how you have to operate in that world. Well, I think it's also they don't care. I mean, like, who cares about it? Anybody who cares about that isn't somebody who I care about right now. It kind of gets to the blind ambition thing too, right? I'm going for it. I'm going for it on this day. I don't care about this other stuff. It's not an issue I'm going to be out there on, or I'll be on the opposite sides of it. And I don't really care. It's sort of the whole motivating factor of the entire Trump movement and how it's actually grabbed people like Nikki Haley and pulled them into it. It's just about ambition, power, money, and nothing else matters. Again, everybody's going to become a political stunt artist, all these people who get in, because that's the only way you have any chance to attract or grow in the party right now. That's what it wants. That's what it craves. And again, like, you know, just pulling out old 90s jokes about hills, I guess, is the best they can do. But there won't be any policy creativity or, or even, I think, caring there about what to do. I think that, unfortunately, if I put my nerd hat back on, that we're in a post-policy world for the moment or an unpolicy world, not post because policy will come back for better or worse. But I, I think you're also right in that you've seen before her video and before her launch there, you know, she started tweeting about critical race theory and only American citizens should vote and all this other stuff. And you're starting to see like the only American citizens should vote thing pop up all over the place, which means somebody pulled on it because that's like such an issue of all the other things. But let me switch gears to Iran DeSantis, because DeSantis is one of those guys who is very much he is not trying to thread that needle, which is an impossibility. He is very much trying to move to MAGA. One thing I thought was interesting, though, earlier this week was that the college board who administers, you know, the SAT, AP classes after caving to him on quote unquote, watering down African-American history studies, sort of found its spine and said, leave us alone. You know, you're a bully. And he said, maybe we'll just get rid of AP classes altogether. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, George Packer wrote a book, Last Best Hope, I think, that came out last year. And he describes four Americas. And one of them is smart America. And smart America's, you know, people like me. I've got kids in school, educated, successful have an expectation that kids are going to go to college, that they'll do better than we will, that there's a social currency to where they go to school, to what they do for a living, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so now what you're telling all these Gen X wealthy white people in Florida is, sorry, no plus up for your kid's GPA, which I know it's very niche, but again, those people, my cohort, Joe, are tending to vote more Republican than not because I think there's probably a resource hoarding thing or this world works for me and maybe I'm not an overt racist like, you know, Bubba down the street. But the truth is, is that like the world that Trump outlines works for me better than the one that somebody else might outline. And I also think that 
as far as DeSantis is going, I don't think he's a particularly good politician anyway, is it also finds a way to sort of screw him in a general should he beat Trump, which has a whole bunch of other cascading events. No, I agree. I mean, look, I don't think you can out-Trump Trump. Trump won't let that happen. I also still think that both of them, Trump and DeSantis, are really good at playing to the base and horrible about any ability to expand out, which I think, given the polarization that we're in, they're going to end up creating a split in MAGA. You know, I mean, somehow there's no way these two things can equal a win in November of 2024 for either one of them. On the other hand, when you look at these polls and you see, you know, Trump at 42 or 44 and DeSantos at 30, 29, 31, there's no room for a Nikki Haley or a Larry Hogan. Or, or And by the way, she can't be both a MAGA and a rhino. There's going to be pure rhinos like Larry Hogan who, you know. But even Hogan said he'd support Trump. So, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, they probably all will say that no matter what. And they probably all will if he's the nominee. So I was speaking to a group last Friday night. They were, I'd say, a mixed bag politically. More probably leaned left than identified as Democrats. And one identified as a Republican who was done with Trump and lived in Florida and, and was supporting DeSantis. And I said, think about what you have to accept, right? Okay, so he's not Trump. So let's say that makes up 75% of the reason why you're voting for Ron DeSantis. Let's say it's another 10% because you've heard his name or because you live in Florida. But then you've got critical race theory. You've got the stuff on race. You've got the stuff on African-Americans. You've got the stunts of flying migrants from Texas to Florida. Like just the general, like being an asshole, being, uh, you know, downright proto-fascist when it comes to private industry. Like you have to be okay with all of those things to say that Ron DeSantis is my guy, right? Is it just easier because he's, not, you know, you don't see him as embarrassing like you do Trump when you're sitting around the country club? Right. Like, OK, yeah, he's a boor and everything else. But, you know, DeSantis, he went to Yale and he went to Harvard and he played on the baseball team and he served in the army and, or Navy, whatever the hell it was. Right. And he's got a pretty wife. So, like, I'm not embarrassed by DeSantis. It's not whether or not, Joe, his belief system, which I think is cynical, to be honest with you, is antithetical to decency and democracy. But, you know, I'm not embarrassed to support him publicly. They will be. <laughs> Trump will assure it. Yeah, I don't think he's going to wear well. There's something about that guy, no likability, I think. I mean, I think it all, that assholeness will not wear well over time. And I still think he is so driven, and I think many in the race will be so driven by trying to pick up the Trump mantle. You can't pick up the whole Trump mantle, one. That's the first fallacy. And then the second one is to the extent you succeed in doing that, you can't pick up anything else. And so when you look at these states that were lost by 15,000 votes or 40,000 votes, you have to have all that Trump stuff all in one place and you can't lose any of it. And I just think it's literally running as fast as you can into a blind alley, not realizing that there's no way out. So there's a great book that I've referenced many times by Richard Ben Kramer, in which you are featured in it prominently. What it takes, what it takes to be president, which for shorthand, I've always said, are you willing to do the thing the other person isn't to win the most powerful position humanity's ever created? In 1988, George H.W. Bush was, Michael Dukakis wasn't. 
but there's also sort of the stylistic part of this. And you mentioned it with DeSantis, which is like, really? I mean, I remember watching a video in probably 2014 of Scott Walker, who'd done a video for a conference I was putting on. I'm like, this guy, this guy's never going to be president, <laughs> right? Like you could just see. And so what is it that you see when you just look at somebody? Because you've done this for a long time with a lot of different candidates. You just look at you go, nope. It's such a snap judgment sometimes. Well, you have to want it. You have to want it more than anything else on this planet, more than your family. I mean, this is the sort of antithetical, we treasure people who care about their families, et cetera. No, no, this is like, you care about nothing else more than this. And none of them are prepared for it. Even people who plan for eight, 10, 12, 14, 16 years to run for president of the United States, they get into it and have no clue. I mean, they're, they're shocked by what it takes to do it. And I think all of them, including DeSantis, it's not as easy as it looks, guys. It's just not. It's the very tough thing to do, even if you have a really good staff and you think you're prepared for it, you're not. And we talk about it. It's like it's not going from triple A to the majors. It's going from Little League to the majors. Right. While you're standing in the batter's box trying to hit a ball while other people are hitting you with baseball bats at the same time, literally hitting you with baseball yeah, bats. Yeah. I, like I said, I mean, putting one of these things together is like you're putting the wings on the plane as it's rolling down the runway and praying that it doesn't crash into the ground the second you pull up on the yoke. By the way, that book, I would recommend it to anybody out there who's interested in, in what it's really like to be in a presidential campaign. Also, a guy named Joe Biden prominently featured in that story. Yes. And something like whatever, 30 something years later, actually becomes president. But the book is everything from what a debate really feels like and how they really prep for it to what it's like. And I've been with candidates and you can see them lose it. I mean, you can see that moment where they realize, you know what? Nah, it's not worth doing that. I'm not going to do it. And you can just literally see it leaving them. I've seen that, Joe. I mean, it's fascinating you say that because I've literally seen that. Trying to prep a candidate and it was the go, no go moment. Like you have to decide. We don't have more time. We have to decide. And the potential candidate, literally you saw him deflate into his chair. I will never forget the image in it. You're so right. It's like the force drained out of the Jedi. And now he's just a regular person. And you're sitting in there, you know, if they're the governor, you're sitting in the governor's mansion. If they're a senator, maybe you're sitting in the Senate office. You know, if they're wealthy, you're sitting in a lodge or their dining room or something. And you see like the spouse and the kids and you're trying to explain do you know how bad this is going to be? Because I can't explain it other than to tell you, imagine how bad it could be. Imagine it. That's not going to be nearly as bad as it will be. And half the time they don't believe it. And if they're a United States senator, they almost assuredly don't believe it because they've all been planning to be president since they took office. Right. As my dad, a longtime Hill denizen said, senators would all wear togas if they thought they could get away with it. And sometimes the spouses are more into it than the candidate. Sometimes the spouse and the candidate can't stand each other. And that starts to come out because nothing escapes. It's just like when you're part of a documentary, when you're the subject of a documentary, nothing escapes the camera, no matter how hard you try. Minute after minute, day after day, hour after hour, week after week, it's going to pick up everything. And that's the same thing a presidential campaign does. It is an astonishing thing. And there's no way to prepare for it. I mean, I tell people, everybody in America should jump on a presidential campaign at some point in their lives. I mean, there's nothing like it. The day it's over, you'll say, 
wow, that was the most amazing experience of my life. That's even when you lose, you actually say that. But the next, even if you win, the very next sentence is, but please, God, don't let me ever do that again. Right. But there are people like us and Stu who are fundamentally broken who have done it. Yeah, many, yeah. Many who are times. crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it is, it is a singular thing. You know, I was lucky enough, Joe, I, I worked for George W. Bush right when he was governor of Texas and he was running the first time. And I was lucky enough to be an advanced guy, which the listeners have heard too many times. And here I am traveling the country, you know, from the, you know, the icy fields of Iowa to the swamps of South Carolina and then every state literally in between. And it's exciting and you get caught up in it and you can't imagine doing anything else. And there is that crucible, especially when you think you've got the head of steam to win like we did. But I also remember in 2000 after, and Stuart talks about this too, after, you know, McCain crushes Bush in New Hampshire by 21, we're sitting in South Carolina going, we could lose. Wait, wait, we could lose, right? <laughs> like, and they're like, oh no, we could actually lose this thing. And then obviously, you know, Bush wins South Carolina and the rest is history. But I remember in 04, sitting at the re-election headquarters for George W. Bush after that first debate against Kerry. I'd been on the re-election campaign since July of 03, Joe, right? More than a year at this point. And after that first debate performance going, oh, shit, we could lose. We might actually lose this thing because it never occurred to me. Well, that's how it always is. But, you know, the thing is, we were on different sides of all during all this. We had big disagreements on how to move forward as a country, but we always believed that whoever the two nominees were, were arguing over what's the best way to make this country better. And that suddenly changed to this authoritarian movement that doesn't want democracy, the Trumpism. And there's a lot of well-meaning people out there who think there's still two parties or maybe a third party, you know, maybe there's some way we can find the middle. There just isn't because there's no middle between saving the democracy and wanting to kill it. <laughs> you know I mean, there's just no middle there, man. Right. And that's what I tried to tell some folks that I was talking to late last week is that we don't see the world as right and left or Democratic versus Republican. Right. It's like democracy or not. That's the line. And it's a different line than I think, admittedly, than a lot of folks are used to. And so a lot of times, you know, when I say, yeah, I think that, you know, the Republican Party as an institution probably needs to be defeated and defeated and defeated again. People are like, but what about the moderate Republicans? And then we go back. Well, you know, you've been bitten by the lizard, everything else. All right. So, Joe, about a year ago, and admittedly, it was an election year, so this is going to be unfair. You wrote a memo for the Lincoln Project about how you saw 2022 playing out. And I think of the five things, I think you got like 4.75 of them right. So how do you see 2023 playing out? What should we be looking for that's not the hustle bustle of debt ceilings and everything else? You know, read the four or five things that I cited back then about why Democrats should be more optimistic and we're going to be doing better than people thought in 2022. It's literally the same things. The contrast between the mega crazies and Calm doing the work leadership of Biden and the administration. Democrats, you know, I think we're seeing that with McCarthy, with Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the mega caucus is going to be even more chaotic with the debt ceiling, putting the country at risk, creating more chaos. So I think that I said, look, they're going to keep doing the crazy. And I think that's only going to continue. I also said that I thought Biden, his approval rating, you know, this was at the height of 
gas prices and everything skyrocketing inflation. And I thought that would stabilize. It did not as much as I thought, but I think it's going to do that even more now going into 2023 and 2024. So I think Biden's numbers are going to be up. I think his approval is going to be up. I think that contrast between the mega crazy chaos and just this steady leadership and getting things done for people that Biden and the administration Democrats have been working on, those two things are still in play. I think the other thing, though, is Democrats need to fight. And you see this, they're getting better at fighting, better at calling out crazy, right? Better at taking it on. I think Hakeem Jeffries is going to, I think, prove to be you know, a street fighter in terms of calling stuff out and, and being able to articulate what the differences are. And Biden is really doing that. I mean, the way he walked them in that State of the Union address. So I think there's three or four of the things that I talked at, which by the way, I back then I said, they're not good at this. This is not something we're good at. We got to get better at it. I think that's really improving. But the one thing that won't be the case is the map. You know, I thought the map actually was going to look better than people thought back then. You know, the redistricting didn't, wasn't as great as I thought it could be, but it wasn't as nearly as bad as the pundits uh, thought it was going to be for Democrats. 2024 is not a great map. I mean, in terms of what Senate seats are up, it's a tougher year. But I do think that again, and we're seeing it, I think we'll see it in their presidential nomination fight too. They're going to have crazy primaries, you know, people trying to out Trump the Trumpy in the Senate race. There'll be more Herschel Walkers and more Dr. Oz's. And so a lot of the pieces are still in place. And I think even more improved than they were when I wrote that first memo. So I'm actually still pretty optimistic about 2024. As am I. But I would also say that the flip side, and you referenced it, is that the MAGA movement, the Trumpism movement, will go further into the darkness. It will not moderate. The only way, if and when it ever does some something center right comes back is if you sort of drive it out of the party. And I don't I don't see that happening. No. And I think the other thing that people are particularly the press, you watch the reporters interviewing people in the administration. They're talking about what well, you did this. You said you did this. You've said you did this. The jobs. But how do you explain that no one thinks you've done a good job? And I want one of them to turn around and like go. Our job is to do it. Your job as a reporter or a pundit is to explain to the American people what's happening, what the reality is. That's the one thing that's not going to change. I don't know what it was, but they've always underestimated Biden. They'll always be talking about how he's 80 years old. They'll be playing into the MAGA crowd, talking about he's senile, he's over the hill, all that garbage that they push out. And you've said this to me, we've talked about this. If he were 41 years old, everybody would be out there screaming he's the greatest president we've ever had. When you actually look at all the stuff he's done over the, in the last two years, to dig us out of that pandemic, the strongest economy in the world to come out of that thing. Yes, with inflation. Yes, with supply chain issues. But damn, he's done an incredible job. I think that's going to become clearer, not because of the press corps, but because people will start to feel it more. Yeah. Well, as always, Joe, thank you. We look forward to that. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you online and where can they find that trippy show? Twitter, it's at Joe Trippy and That Trippy Show, a podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts or at ResoluteSquare.com, you can find it there too. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Joe, thanks as always for joining me. 
and everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.